Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, we'll be joined by Angels catcher Max Stassi. Max will talk about pitch framing, catching Shohei Otani, and much more. We'll also be joined by singer-songwriter Matt Halverson, who likes to write baseball music. And we'll get the thoughts of new Hall of Fame inductee Larry Walker on his favorite type of defensive play. Let's get right to it. On today's show, we're joined by Angels catcher Max Stassi. Stassi's family business is catching. It's been a couple of years since we had a catcher on our show. Austin Hedges was the last one. Max, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. So first of all, you were concussed earlier this year. You had a thumb injury. How's your health at the moment? Health is great. Yeah, I uh, had a kind of a freak uh, incident with a concussion there and feeling great, though. You know, trying to finish the season strong and win some games for the Halos. Max has put up another solid year when it comes to defensive runs saved, particularly in the area of pitch framing. And that's something that we will talk about with him. But as we always ask players first, can you remember the first time that you ever made a great defensive play and what it was like? So Santa Claus brought me catcher's gear when I was five years old. So I've been a catcher pretty much my (laughs) whole life. And first great play that I think I ever made, I think it probably was throwing out a runner when I was in Little League, when I was about nine years old, if I remember right on the backfield there, Peach Bowl Little League. So, yeah. (laughs) Nice. Now we should explain, and I think people who, who know your background a little bit, know your brother's background, certainly know this. As I said, catching is the family business going back multiple generations. Can you just take us through I guess, how that came to be and what that's like to have all these generations of catchers in your family. Yeah. So I I guess you could say I was born in position. Uh, My dad caught professionally. His dad caught professionally. My great, great uncle played with Babe Ruth. He wasn't a catcher, though. He was a right fielder, Merle Hogue. Yeah, it's just kind of born in his position. You know, I was never forced to catch. My brothers are both, I have two brothers, they're both left handed. So I was the only righty, and, you know, somebody had to catch him. So that was me. And, you know, I, I've always loved the catching position and, you know, love the technique and trying to get better. And there's just so many different aspects of catching that it makes a lot of fun. Do you have any insight as to how, I guess it would be your grandfather became a catcher, considering that Merrill Hogue wasn't one and Merrill Hogue had a long major league career too. I was just curious, like how it came to be that he was an outfielder or whatever he was and your other family members have all gone this route. I'm not sure. I never had the had the chance to ask him that. It was just kind of looking back at, you know, it was just kind of what we did and what we do now. So I never asked him why he started catching. It was just like, yeah, you were a catcher. I'm a catcher. My dad was a catcher. Like, this is just who we are. So I wish <laughs> I'll ask my dad one day, but I'm, I don't know if there'll ever be an answer for that one. You said, you know, you, when you were five, you were basically given catcher's gear. When did you learn something like pitch framing? Pitch framing for me started, I would say, so there was a workout that I did in 2008, the fall of 2008, it was at Cal. So I have a family friend, Scott Goldie, he's the West Coast Scouting Director for the Florida Marlins. And he had the catching coordinator. He was over there working out with John Baker at the time when he was with the Florida Marlins. And he started taking me through some receiving work. This is back before, the, obviously, you can track it and measure it just kind of learned uh, some subtle techniques that I still kind of apply to this day. That was in the fall of 2008 and I was drafted in 2009. And then when pitch training really took off was 2013 though, for me when the Houston Astros hired Mike Bass. 
and we he put together a presentation. Yeah, that was spring training 2013, and you know we they they started measuring it and video, and it's still kind of didn't know but they kind of knew and then obviously nowadays there's you know a lot more information about it out there now certainly now when i watched you and i i watched probably 20 pitcher 20 taken pitches or so yesterday just to try and get a feel for your approach some guys are like you know bring the ball up on the way up i felt like very much with you it was a matter of you're trying to have things with your pitcher where you catch the ball where the target was set and I'm, I'm curious about how you approach trying to do that and how you approach trying to make sure, A, that a strike is a strike and B, that you're getting that pitch that's right on the edge. Yeah, I think that, you know, my glove load will change. And, you know, obviously you want the ball in between your knees and where exactly your glove is. But, you know, the average miss in Major League Baseball is, I think it's roughly like 18 inches. So, you know, there's balls going everywhere and it's, it's a lot of it's preparing for the miss, you know, the pitchers miss. Once you get to know guys, you know, if they have the good breaking ball, you know, where that's going to end up, but you know, if it backs up or, you know, it just doesn't go to the right location, how are you still going to give it the best chance to become a strike? So that's kind of, I try to have smaller movements at times and sometimes I have bigger movements and I don't think that necessarily there's a right or wrong answer to that. You just kind of have to figure out what worked for you and just going through trial and error. Before we started, I showed you a picture. It was with Aaron Judge at the plate. You were catching. Jaime Barrio was pitching, and he was on the verge of throwing the pitch, and you did your kind of glove tap of the dirt there. Now, I've seen a, a bunch of catchers do that. It's not something that's necessarily unusual, but what's behind what you're trying to do there with trying to catch the pitch? So if my glove was that low, Odds are it was a slider that I was calling that was obviously I went it down and away. There I'm just trying to stay below the ball. I mean, that's that's a pretty common theme nowadays, staying below the ball. I think that there's a domino effect as far as, you know, receiving goes, you know, as far as, you know, your targeting, your pre-pitch movement, your route to the ball, and then it kind of goes from there. So I feel like if that first domino is off, then you can't knock the other ones. So I try to start that first domino and be below the ball. And then on certain pitches, I'll go lower. Some obviously are higher, smaller glove load, bigger glove load. That's what I was trying to do there is to stay below the ball. One thing that the angels have and a number of teams have this, this year is they have pitchers with a variety of deliveries. And I think Steve Ciszek is a veteran that people have seen the other day. You guys had someone that debuted Jimmy Herget and his delivery was a little unusual if you care to describe it. Um, how do you go about trying to handle a guy with a little bit more of a funkier motion? For me, it's in the warmups really, because that was the first time I've ever caught him. I faced him when he was with the Rangers. So I kind of knew, you know, what his pitch shapes were like. But, you know, with our analytic department here with the Angels and then, you know, with Kurt Suzuki, we go in there and look at their trackman info. So we try to figure out their trackman info before we go out there. So we see what the ball is actually doing. So we match up kind of a, a way we go about it. We match up kind of what their pitches are doing. And then from there, you know, we, we have a pretty clear picture, but then once you see the delivery, you kind of know when to time up your glove and you know how you want your glove load to be and then go from there. So a lot of it is, is kind of some preparation before, but you know, there's always the the element of like, whoa, that kind of surprised me there. Or man, I gotta like get it started early. So that's what the warm-ups 
or four, but sometimes you got to wing it too. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the analytics department. So you work hand in hand with someone from that group with regards to catching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, our overall, we have, we have a group of people and you know, they'll, whatever information you want, you go in there and ask. And obviously it's very important, you know, to, you know, keep strike strikes and present the ball as good as you can. So they'll do anything to, to help you out in that, in that area. What's an example of something you ask when you go for something like that? I just look for like video and what areas I'm good at, what areas I'm not good at, you know, how I can improve or, you know, why, why am I not getting certain pitches? It's, it's kind of basic stuff though. Sure. Basic to, well, basic to you, a little bit more <laughs> uh, complicated to, you know, the, the ordinary fan. You mentioned you, that you would face Hergit. Do you draw upon lessons learned when you hit against a guy when you're catching them? I have a totally different mindset when I catch than when I hit. It's obviously, you know, the offensive defense and, you know, the defensive side, you are really trying to get into the hitter's mind of like, okay, what do you, what is he thinking here? What's, you know, what does the history show in these situations? What does he do? What have we done to him in the past? What does he hit? What does he not hit? What's the pitcher strength? So I've got a lot going through my mind on the defensive side versus the hitting is like, I'm locked into, you know, this pitch or this area. And I'm trying to pull the trigger. So, gotcha. When you catch someone like Cishek, is are you drawing upon what you knew from like for the first time? Say, are you drawing upon what you knew from catching like a Joe Smith or someone like that? Yeah, you know those guys are you know similar slot of guys, and yeah, I, I definitely you know try to compare to okay, this guy is like this, and like I said with Alex Tamman, our our assistant GM, he's kind of the head of you know our analytics and. He gives us a good solid background of what their pitches do, how they like to pitch, what we'd like to see from them. So um, we're all kind of on the same page there and have that mental image and even actually watching video before and seeing the track man to know that, okay, this is what this guy does or doesn't do. When you have your pre-series meeting to, to or pre-game meeting to talk through a lineup, what's that like for you? It's just going over, we, we, yeah, we start off with the pitcher strengths. I think you always should. You know, what does this pitcher do good? You know, what areas of the zone, you know, has he been successful? What's he not? What's he working on? This worked last time. So it's always, it's kind of evolving in that aspect. Just some little things here and there. And then you go over the hitters, you know, the strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, what does this guy hit? What has he been hitting recently? What hasn't he been hitting? I think that across baseball, that's kind of the general, right. general theme. But most of the time you'll see, you know, the pitchers, they, they pitch a certain way, the way that they've had the most success, even, you know, opponents and they, they'll alter a few things, but I wouldn't say it's anything groundbreaking. Gotcha. We, we should ask about one pitcher in particular with you guys. Uh, you caught Shohei five times this year. You're not necessarily his primary guy. He's got a 256 ERA when you do catch him, six to one strikeout to walk. What is it about his stuff that maybe we don't see on TV that you see that's particularly impressive? It's all impressive across the board. Yeah. I mean, he's got five pitches and I don't know how you game plan for a guy like that. You know, he's, he's coming at you so many different ways. He's got such a good awareness of, you know, what the opposition is doing, what he's feeling, what, you know, his thought process is. And he's very even keeled throughout the entire time. So his pitches, they're, they're all plus across the board. So what you see on TV is like how nasty those are. They ask when I'm catching, that's, that's exactly kind of the view that, that I have in there. Very good pitches. What's his split like to catch? 
Yeah, it's got some serious tumble to it. Some of them are almost like mini knuckleball, I guess you could say. Yeah, and they're about, you know, 80, he's 86, 91 with it. So they're coming in hard and good luck to the hitters. <laughs> what, in terms of best pitches that you've caught, I mean, I, I, not many guys are throwing the splitter. So we'll put, you know, we would presume that he's going to be number one. What's the best pitch that you've caught from someone else, whether it was with the Astros or the Angels or whoever? I've caught a lot of really, really good pitchers. I mean, wow, that's a, I mean, there's got to be a, like a top five. Is it like a Verlander category. or something? McCullers and then a McCullers knuckle uh, curve? Yeah, I mean, all those guys are <laughs> elite. You know, Tani split to uh, Charlie Morton curveball to, you know, Lance McCullers curveball to Verlander's fastball to Garrett slider and fastball. Like, I mean, those are all like, I don't know how you could pick one. And It gets to a point that you've caught essentially some of the best, like, it, you haven't been in the majors necessarily that long, but you've caught some of the best pitches in baseball, essentially. Yeah. 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 I've been very fortunate to be around some very good pitchers. Who is the toughest guy you had to catch? They're also different. And I wouldn't say necessarily they're, they're tough, but just the way they go about, you know, their day before, you know, the pregame meeting to, you know, in game to talking. I mean, everyone's different, but they're all pretty unique. I wouldn't say that anyone was necessarily tough, but, which is what I enjoy about catching is dealing with different types of personalities. Certainly plenty of these days to deal with with the number, the number of pitchers that come in and out of the major leagues. A couple other things before we let you go here. How much do you like to know about the umpire before you go into a game? I don't really look too much into the umpire. I've heard that there's umpire report cards or, or all of that out there, but I haven't, I haven't dove into to the umpire. So basically just his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There has been an emphasis on finishing guys up up top a lot more the last couple of years, really last five, six years, to combat the uppercut swings in baseball these days. How has that changed what you do? I would say that yeah, across the board. So I had a pitching coach in Houston always still there, Brent Strong. I'd like to say he's kind of the the OG of the high fastball. You know, he was he was teaching that back in when he was, you know, the pitching coordinator with, with the Cardinals and, you know, 08 and 07, it's, it's a pretty good pitch. I mean, it kind of is the equalizer, but the thing is, is you have to be able to spin it to go up top there. And, you know, with obviously the sticky stuff and that situation, guys aren't spinning it like they used to. So I think that you'll see more of a trend of kind of the sinker change up kind of comeback. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can do it and, you know, you have to always respect that and, the way that it appears that it's rising and it's closer to your eyes and the ball looks bigger for most that, guys. It's a tough pitch to lay off. Did that become more front of mind for you once you started talking to Brent? Yeah. Kind of that whole organization and the philosophy. I mean, you look at the guys that they've acquired over the years and have developed, you know, they've majority of them have been, you know, high forcing sweeping sliders type guys, curveballs off that too. Yeah, I've just seen how effective it is. And like you said, the uppercut swing and the launch angle and guys trying to lift the ball. That's just kind of where where it's gone. All right. And now I'm a fun and potentially uh, interesting topic here. When we had Austin Hedges on the podcast two years ago, we talked about automated balls and strikes and robot umps and the potential for that coming. He had some strong opinions on that. I'm curious what your take is with regards to the potential for robot umps to join MLB in the near future. Yeah, I think number one, Twitter is killing the, 
the game as far as people putting these umpires on blast for some calls that they may not think that, you know, were necessarily close. And I don't think that's fair to them, number one, because they might have gotten every single call right, but the one call that, you know, it, they call a slider that's a little bit off. And, you know, they even the catcher gives up on it. It's not like the catcher's, like, stealing the pitch or whatever. And Yeah, so I think that that, number one, has raised a lot of attention towards it. And I think that a lot of hitters will be upset with balls that, you know, clip the zone that, you know, maybe the catcher set up in on a righty and, you know, he reaches all the way across and the umpire balls it. That's now going to be called a strike. From that aspect, I think that hitters, it's kind of like anything in life. Like you remember all the bad times more so than kind of the, the okay, good times when, you know, those things don't go your way. But as far as the catching position, I think it's becomes a second BH. You don't have to worry. It's sort of in the eighth inning. You don't have to worry, receive, block, throw. Now all of a sudden it's first and third, eighth inning, one run game. It's now only I have to block or throw. And then you know if it's you know a guy that doesn't run, then you can just set up on two knees and just block. So the the whole dynamic of catching will just completely change. The catcher's gear will shift to the left because you'll see guys that are going to just set up straight sideways because you don't have to receive the ball. So you just have to <laughs> knock the ball down. And, you know, if it's a fastball guy, then anyone can catch a fastball. So all the work that we've done in receiving and keeping strike strikes and pitch framing or whatever you want to call it, like it's that goes out the window and pretty much anyone can catch when there's, it's like a fraternity of the catchers that, you know, have played this game now and before us that, you know, we understand the grind that we go through, the, the amount of work, the, you know, all the, all the hours and just the, your legs hurt and you're trying to figure out a way. And for guys that, you know, maybe haven't hit throughout their career, they were in the big leagues for a long time because of their defensive skills that I think that you won't see those guys as much or if, if at all because of, taking just the the main aspect that's the main aspect of catching is receiving that's what you do the most and if you take that out then it's it completely changes i think the entire game the two knee thing is fascinating to me like i can't even imagine a catcher doing that and and you're saying that 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 would happen all right i got one hitting question to let you go here so last two seasons 20 and 21 with the angels you have an 841 ops 18 home runs in 100 games time that we're taping this ops plus 127 which makes you one of the best hitting catchers in baseball what's the secret i would say number one is health Uh, i've had two hip surgeries and that has really freed up my hips Uh, i didn't realize how much my hips were hurting or um, how tight they were until I got those surgeries done. So I think that that is like number one and two is I'm getting more of an opportunity here to play. And this organization has believed in me since the day that I've showed up. So that's another big thing. And then, you know, making some adjustments with my swing, nothing crazy. I'm just kind of changing my angles up to try to get into rotation better and, and not have, you know, a loop in my swing. Good health, certainly important. Adjusting as you go, certainly important. The lessons of a major leaguer. Max Stassi, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mark. Here at Sports Info Solutions, we track a lot of different types of baseball plays. Some things you see, like our defensive run saved stat, some we don't discuss as often. One thing that we've tracked for many years is what we call good fielding plays. And when you think of what that might be, you're probably thinking of a famous catch or throw. 
Larry Walker is being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame with Derek Jeter, Ted Simmons, and Marvin Miller on September 8th. Walker won seven gold gloves in his career, much of which was played before defensive runs saved was a stat. And there isn't necessarily a signature good fielding play for him to be remembered by. But when asked about the kind of defensive play that was his signature, he had his own version of a good fielding play. Well, I, um, you know, the one that, or the ones, because I, I, I worked on a little different than anybody else, was the ones of deking the base runners uh, on catching a ball when I really had no chance of catching it and, and playing it off the wall. You, know, you see that so many times, and it's usually just a guy throwing his glove up, and there, there's really nothing else involved with the eyes or the body or the, or the positioning. So I really took an art into trying to position and make it look like I was actually catching the ball. I was looking in, up in the sky at a place where the ball wasn't, where a lot of guys look where the ball is. So uh, it, I, I gave that effect of it. And I know there's there's one game, it was actually that 22-inning game in Montreal where I, I deked uh, Eddie Murray and in, 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 uh, to not scoring on a, I think he was on second on a, on a double hit to right field and had no chance of catching the ball off the wall, played it and got it in and nobody ended up scoring. And I guess people probably liked that or they didn't because the game continued on for 22 innings. Larry Walker will be happy to know that deeks are something we track. They're an important part of the game. We're glad they're endorsed by a Hall of Famer. Congrats to the four of them on their Hall of Fame induction. Halverson is a musician, writer, and activist. He's pertinent to us because he worked at Sports Info Solutions way back in 2005, not long after we started as a company. And I did want to give him a few minutes to promote a project he's working on because it's right up Listener's Alley. It's an album of folk music baseball songs called Nine Innings. He's releasing them one at a time. The full release will be done during the World Series. Hey, Matt. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Good. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join us. Give us just a general sense of your background. Well, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, loving baseball in the snow and have just tried to be as involved with it as I could for most of my life. And so finished high school. My first job had been as a bat boy for the local independent league team, worked for another indie ball team for a few years in college and kind of kicked around trying to keep hanging on to some baseball in my life for a few more years. And Worked for the Braves for Baseball Info Solutions, as we called it at the time, and then kind of moved from there out to the Northwest and have spent the last 10 or 15 years writing about race and education and the inequity in our schools and writing songs about baseball. And the baseball project is finally ready to see the light of day, and it's been a lot of fun putting it out there this year. Give us a sense of your baseball fandom and how intense it is and the baseball work that you did. You, you did some things besides working for us. I mean, I don't know how to describe how much I loved baseball, especially growing up. It was just, it was everything to me. It felt like a sort of a sacred thing, you know, in a strange world. And so I played at a a small D2 school in South Dakota, never got on the field much, but I just took a million ground balls and played catch every day for four extra years and have just sort of, I think in a lot of ways, baseball, you know, the way that I grew up with it became sort of a lens through which I looked at the world. And so when I started looking at how how am I going to spend my days as an adult, finding some way to tie baseball into that seemed like it made all the sense in the world. So 
I worked uh, mostly doing PR media relations for a few minor league teams. I worked for the Memphis Redbirds, the Cardinals AAA team in 04, which was a really fun experience and cool because it was the year that Molina and Wainwright were both there. So there's been this kind of tie to the Cardinals for almost, what, 20 years now that I've felt. But I worked for the Braves um, in their PR department for one last year. And after that, realized that, you know, I'm not quite cut out to do the same thing every day and that baseball was turning into work for me instead of this thing that I had always loved. And so found a way, you know, to reconnect with the parts of baseball that I loved by coaching my kids and, you know, taking some ground balls when I get a chance and focusing more on, you know, the kind of the heart and soul behind the game of the, the players and the, the stories that, that I grew up with. The album is folk music, and the subjects are largely prominent baseball names, Jackie Robinson, Lou Gehrig, Roger Maris among them, but also, and I like this, Kevin Elster, Jurickson Profar, and some people who go way, way, way back, like Moses Fleetwood Walker and Carl Mays, who were names that are known in baseball history, but maybe not known to everyone that follows the game. You say that the songs are about life, loss, and big league baseball players. What's the goal of the music? The goal was to tell stories that come from the heart, you know, and and I think that a lot of times the best music, the best art is infused with some real emotion. And and so I think in some ways what I was looking for in writing these songs and choosing these players was for stories where I I saw at least or felt some really intense emotion. And and so kind of looking back at what the album has become and the players that I chose and the stories that I've been trying to tell, I can see now that almost all the stories were about sort of examining that person's lowest moment or darkest hour or hardest moment, or maybe the, their defining moment and trying to process that and understand it, you know, for myself. And so with all these songs, it was about taking something really intense that someone else had gone through and trying to put myself into that situation, feel it for myself, and then write from that place and try to tell some stories that might, I don't know, surprise people a little bit. I think when people hear me say that I've been writing songs about baseball, they're expecting something, you know, that would pump up a crowd at a ball game or something. And then it doesn't turn out to be that. But but yeah, I've been hoping that the songs, you know, could stand on their own and that knowing, oh, this is about a ball player in this specific way might kind of enhance the experience or, you know, give that depth that really gives the song some extra meaning. The songs are generally fairly melancholy. Is there a positive message that we should take from them? I mean, I think I see some hope in all these songs. And I think if anything, the message that I've been taking away is one of empathy that in looking really deeply at all these players that on the surface went through something that I could never understand or something different than I will ever experience there has been some way in for me to connect really deeply with that moment in their life. And so I think it's been, yeah, if there's a positive message, it's that we are all, we're all connected and we're all going through something similar at different points in our life. And so, you know, making sure that we are showing compassion and, you know, acting out of the best parts of ourselves as much as we can. I feel like honestly, that has been something that has come to me out of this project is just knowing that at any point, anybody around me might be going through something like this and that I would probably react in a very similar way. And so how can I show people more grace, I guess? That's very powerful. That's impressive. 
So, as I mentioned, one of the songs is about a current player, Ferguson Profar, who has had his ups and downs in his career. Some ups, some downs. He's kind of established as what he is right now. What was the purpose of that song? With a few of the guys, like Elster, for instance, he could have been any number of players in a way. It was looking for somebody that represented a certain idea about, you know, for Elster, kind of one of those lesser known guys during the steroid era. And for Profar, I chose him because I'm a, he's one of my favorite current players. And I've been following him since he was 16, you know, reading about him in Baseball America. And in following prospects and kind of working in minor league baseball for that long, I started to see just what a sort of endless cycle it could be in baseball to always be looking for the next year, to always be thinking the next guy is going to be the next big thing. And then as soon as a guy isn't everything that we dreamed he might be, we sort of move past him as though like what jerks and profar is doing now isn't amazing. You know, he's an incredible baseball player, one of the best in the world. And yet he's, he's also part of this sort of cycle of churn of publicity of who's going to be the next, who's going to be the next, who's going to be always thinking that the next year is going to be even better than this year. And the next player is going to be even better than what we've got now. And so that was kind of the basis behind that song. And also, you know, just a sort of strange nugget of just wanting, I really appreciated those Baseball America prospect handbooks and the sort of <laughs> lyrical way in which I thought they were written sometimes. And so I really wanted to try to sneak a couple lines in straight from a handbook. And so that is sort of the, the part of that song that tickles me the most, I guess. We like thoughtful on this podcast, and I appreciate the efforts that you're making to do that. So as, <laughs> oh, as we close out, two questions to close. We are a defense appreciation podcast. Is there a player whose defense might lend itself to a song for you in your future? I was thinking about this, and I, I grew up playing shortstop, and I think have always had a bias toward like the great players at shortstop and the great players, and especially toward guys that are so good with a glove on that they they don't even have to hit hardly, that they are just you know, that they're that beautiful to watch. The guy that came first to mind was Tori Hunter because I'm a Twins fan. And so I grew up, I think I spent, not as a kid, but especially when I was working in Atlanta for that year and Andrew Jones was playing center field for them. I was always the Tori Hunter apologist in the room trying to claim that Hunter was a better defender. But I think I'd be looking probably to somebody like Andrelton Simmons, somebody who's just, you know, taken that glove work at shortstop and done some special things with it. That's cool. All right. And lastly, how can people find you and your work? Well, the music's out there is Cousin Wolf. That's the, the name of the, the band or the artist, I guess. And so if you, anywhere you're listening to music, you should be able to find Cousin Wolf. Cousinwolf.com has some essays that I've written about each player and each song as they come out. And that's the place you can kind of sign up to keep in touch with me and keep tabs on more. But yeah, Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere like that. If you, if you look for Cousin Wolf, you'll find, you'll find some songs about baseball. Awesome. Matt Halverson, thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. All this time All of my wrongs and rights Rewritten and redefined Till I'm unworthy of my own life And now they've marked my name With lies in the sand could have swore that I was a good man So I search for clues In what ways have I withered And what are the ways that I've bloomed How could everything have changed When every day is the same
This wraps up this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thanks to Max Stassi, Matt Halverson, and the folks at the Baseball Hall of Fame for letting me get a question into Larry Walker. For our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 